Good evening, listeners. Welcome back to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Bird. Um, and today we have a very special guest. We have Jeffrey Angles, who just had uh, this past fall the novelizations of Godzilla and Godzilla Raids Again by Shigeru Kayama. He did the translation. Uh, so, the, for the first time in English, you can get that in book form. And to help me with this monumental task, I have a couple of friends. Uh, first, I will introduce our friend Justin Mullis, who was kind enough to help um, get this interview together for us. Uh, you've heard him on the show before. So, Justin, thanks again for getting this set up, and welcome back. Happy to be back, Kyle. Looking forward to this. All right, and then... Uh, no stranger to the show is also Kevin Derendorf of Mazer Patrol. Always glad to be here. All right. And then um, Jeffrey Angles. Um, just, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself um, before we kind of run through some questions with you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. Th- yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad to join you guys here. Um, so I work at Western Michigan University. I'm a professor of Japanese literature uh, and translation studies. Um, I'm a, kind of a cultural historian by, by trade. Um, I, I love books. I'm just a complete book nerd. And uh, so you know, that's how I found my way into this, this world here. Um, there's so much literature out there that needs to be translated. And, uh, and so I've you know, made a big part of my career, you know, looking around, finding fun things to translate that hopefully people would like. And uh, so I, I love the fact that, you know, this work brings me into contact with inter- interesting guys like you, you all here. Yeah, we're not interesting. <laughs> I, well, well, we'll see. I, I, I suspect it's going to be good. Um. All right, well, Jeffrey, I mean, on that note, I mean, what uh, what drew you to this field? You know, how did you become interested in Japanese literature and decide, you know, that uh, the career path of translating and, you know, being a, a professor in that field, um, how, how did that all come about for you? Yeah, um, so when I was 15, I went to Japan for the first time, and I w- I'm from Ohio, um, or I hadn't really been anywhere um, out there in the greater world before going to Japan as a high school exchange student. Um, and so, like, in a way, my encounter with Japan was like encountering the world. You know, the, the I 
never seen the ocean really before. <laughs> and so I, you know, I'd never spent time in mountains. And, uh, and so when I went to Japan and, and lived in a little uh, uh, small town in southwestern Japan for, for a while, um, on the side of a mountain overlooking the sea, it was just such an exciting experience. And so I decided that I was going to learn the language. Um, uh, I was fascinated with everything I saw. And so I just dove in head first. Um, and and uh, I love to read. I'm, as I said before, I, I, I'm a complete book nerd. And so um, I was, of course, immediately intrigued by <laughs> Japanese literature, and I wanted to know what was out there. Um, you know, as I as I spent more time learning Japanese um, and continued uh, with Japanese in high school and college and then graduate school and so on, um, you know, it became clear to me that the world of Japanese literature is enormous. There's as many books published in Japan each year as there are in the United States, despite the fact that Japan has, you know, a much smaller population than the U.S., less than half, you know. So there's so much, like, per capita literary uh, production there. Um, and only the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest fraction of it gets translated into English. Um, I was looking up some t statistics a while back, and it's only something like 25 to 30 books per year, literary books per year, that are translated from Japanese. I think if we were to put manga in there, of course, the number would go up significantly. But, um, but you know, still that's not a big number, considering that there's, you know, tens of thousands of books published every year in Japan. So, um, so as I began to, you know, be able to read Japanese... And, and, and really enjoy Japanese literature and, and, you know, begin to trace some lineages through it, see how people were connected and so on. It just became more and more fascinating. Um, and um, I always have this big, long list of, like, books in my head that I think would be great for translation. So, yeah. Um, while I was in graduate school, I started experimenting with translation, and I love it. I think it's super fun. So that led me to where I am today. So um, we actually wanted to ask you about some of your translation work that you've done uh, prior to um, Kayama and, and Godzilla. And I realized, um, looking through some of the books that I own, that I think the first thing, uh, the first translation of yours that I ever read uh, was actually the uh, poet um, Sakutaro Hagiwara's uh, short story, A Town of Cats. Wow, um, that was really, which, that's great. Yeah, so that was in... Um, Anne and Jeff Vandermeer's uh, big anthology, The Weird. That's where I read that. Um, uh -huh. And I really liked that story. And I was just, I was wondering if maybe you wanted to to talk about that a little bit. Um, I understand that this was apparently the uh, only prose work of Hagawara's that he ever did. Well, um, that's not exactly right. Um, uh, uh, first of all, I want to say that I'm thrilled that you read this. You know, it's funny that you should mention this right at the beginning of this interview, because that was the first literary translation I ever did. I did oh, it wow. as a project, like as a master's degree student, um, and it was just so much fun that, you know, it was kind of with The Town of Cats that I, I got bitten with the translation bug. Um, but yeah, so um, so this is a, a story that was published in, what was it, 1935, Five. that's right, thank you, thank you, um, by uh, a poet, Hagiwara Sakutaro, if, if you put his name in the Japanese order. Um, and he was a he was a, a, a kind of experimental modernist writer um, who uh, experimented with the use of colloquial language in, in poetry. Um, he didn't write too much prose in his life. Um, this is his only major short story, but he did write a lot of other 
prose work. For instance, he wrote a great deal of prose poetry, um, uh, you know, things that are kind of like a, about a page long, uh, you know, uh, sometimes his prose poems are a little bit more like flash fiction than, um, than you know, than maybe what we might consider poetry today. But um, yeah, yeah, he was, he was definitely a fascinating writer. Um, the Town of Cats, I, I was especially drawn to because it's about a guy who is wandering out into the, to the countryside of Japan and, um, and he gets turned around um, because he's got a bad sense of direction. And as a result of that, the, the world looks entirely new to him. And he experiences this thing which apparently is a hallucination, question mark. We're not exactly sure. But um, uh, he experiences this kind of uh, strange hallucination-like experience where uh, he seems to see cats suddenly emerge from every, um, every building and every uh, thing around him. Um, it, it's a really interesting story because it was written right at the time when Japan was kind of beginning its, uh, well, its uh, slip into uh, like uh, militarism, and so uh, you know the government was cracking down upon uh, people who dissented socially, uh, socialists who who protested um, the uh, the order of uh, of of. Uh, of the empire and so on, and so um, you know, there's a there's a point in the in the middle of the novel where the the character is thinking to himself, "Gosh, it seems like you know everything is so tense in this strange town where I am. Uh, it, everybody's moving around in just the right way. Everybody's moves are perfectly calculated." And so um, you know, I think that 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 sense of strong tension that's mounting, mounting, mounting was something that was felt by. People in the mid 1930s in Japan, as Japan became this increasingly repressive um, uh, have, uh, nation, which was, you know, censoring the arts and so on, uh, censoring what people were thinking. So, um, yeah, I like that story a lot for uh, for its kind of um, you know interesting window into that moment in cultural history. Yeah, I, I really enjoy that story. I've read it at least twice, and it's. Um you know, it's, 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 it is, it's kind of a, it's kind of a yokai story. It's kind of a, uh, you know, Baki Neko potentially, right. Shape-shifting cat uh -huh. story. And, and it does, it seems to speak to the sort of tensions of that time period. The, one of the things that drew, drew my, my attention to it because of my, my interests and background is the fact that the, the narrator also, for some reason, seems to conclude that this town of cats must be a, must have originally been an enclave of uh, hidden Christians, right? Yeah. So it also suggests that kind of, you know, um, anxiety about, you know, the uh, westernization in Japan. So, yeah. It's possible. Yeah, it, that, you're right that that little mention uh, of Christianity uh, is... It's thrown in there very suddenly, and there's yeah. not a lot of explanation um, why the character might have thought this. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that is an interesting uh, and a really interesting little piece of, of that story. I'm, I'm not sure I can entirely explain that, but, um, but yeah, I think you're right that there is some kind of uh, tension or, or, or perceived, um, you know, a sense of otherness that's operating there. Uh, so uh, aside from that, um, you kind of have a, made a bit of a name for yourself doing a lot of work on um, the works of uh, Rampo Edogawa. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, right. And, um, I mean, he's a hugely formative figure um, 
kind of he kind of gets pigeonholed i think a lot of the time in in the west as like a horror guy because i mean like the the human chair is really creepy but you know he had a a very diverse kind of range you know detective stories adventure stories stuff for stuff for children um and and i mean that you know obviously also overlaps kind of with what some some of the stuff shigeru kayama was doing but like what kind of drew you to to edogawa's body of work so um, I, I got really interested in him because uh, uh, I decided when I was working on my dissertation um, to uh, to look at a bunch of authors that had written a great deal about same-sex love uh, during the Taisho and early Showa periods. So, oh, the Taisho period is like the 1910s into the 1920s, and um, the early Showa period is the 1920s into the 1930s. So, so I was really interested in that kind of moment of you know enormous cultural change. Um, uh, wanted to look at like writers who were discussing same-sex love, like love between men. And um, it turns out that um, Edgar Rampo, in addition to all of his work writing detective fiction, in addition to writing his, you know, kind of proto-horror stories, um, was also extremely fascinated with the history of same-sex love in Japan. Um, I, I don't know, I can't, conclude uh, uh, conclusively that he was gay, but um, but it does seem that he had a lifelong interest in same-sex love, and um, he was particularly fascinated with um, a handful of other writers who also wrote about that subject. Um, uh, around the time that he wrote some of his famous early work, um, including a story called uh, Kuketsuki, the Vampire, which I think Justin has um, you know, express some interest in his own work. Um, you know, he became very interested in uh, attending some meetings of a uh, psychological research group, uh, which was uh, where a bunch of people were getting together and studying Freud. Um, he started attending this group, and immediately, right off the bat, he said, "I want to to you know contribute to this group by by doing some research on same sex love." And so he um, so he wrote a whole series of very very interesting articles about the way that men men related to each other in the West and and what Japan could learn from from Western folks. And then he took these ideas that he was kind of learning from uh, uh, like. Uh, the British socialist reformer Edward Carpenter, uh, a guy who was an early homophile and wrote a great deal about the the um, democratic power of same-sex love, um, Rambo took those those ideas and then uh, kind of incorporated them into his own work. Um, for instance, Rambo wrote a story uh, or a novel, I should say, uh, called Koto no Oni, uh, the Demon of the Lonely Isle, which is about, uh, which is starring a, a gay character um, in, uh, and, in a time when you know there were very few um, like openly gay characters in you know popular novels. So, uh, so that I, I found that really fascinating. And so, um, as I began to kind of like look at Edgar Rampo and his very multifaceted work, I just found him to be an incredibly exciting figure. He's touching upon so many different things. Um, and in his popular work, he's kind of trying to work out, um, you know, some of the changes that are happening in Japanese society, some of the tensions that existed over same-sex desire. Um, so, yeah. It's a kind of long, complicated answer there, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's that's cool. Uh, have, that, this is adjacent to that, but um, have have you uh, seen any of the works of Erica Friedman? Erica Friedman, no, 
Uh, yeah, she she wrote a she wrote a a, a book called uh, "By Your Side," and that's um, that's chronicling uh, the the development of lesbian manga, and that also starts in the the Taisho era. So it's just, it's oh, kind of a bit of synergy there, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. No, definitely have to check it out. That sounds great. Uh, but yeah, uh, this this being a uh, mostly a movie podcast, you know, we've we've run across a whole lot of different Edogawa works. Yeah, uh, adapted time and time again, and like big yes. names, like we had, um, you know, Kinji Fukasaku doing Black Lizard, and Akio Desoji, the Ultraman director, did three different adaptations, and Shinya Tsukamoto of uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man, he did Gemini based on an Edogawa thing, uh, yep. Taro Ishii, uh, even even Godzilla minus one's director Takashi Yamazaki, he worked on this like kind of like superhero version of the the Fiend with Twenty Faces. Yeah. Um, so I was I was kind of wondering like as as an authority on on Edogawa like have you have you seen these different versions are there some that you feel like they really get him and others that you feel like kind of miss the mark Yeah um the one I think one of the very best film adaptations of his work that I've ever seen was one that was done um I can't remember what the year is um if I had anticipated this question, I would have looked it up in advance. <laughs> so, uh, but there was a really wonderful movie called *The Mystery of Rampo*, which was done. Oh gosh, what was the year? I can't. I can't think of the year off the top of my head. But um, a truly spectacularly beautiful film. Um, it, it Rampo was a strange figure in that, like many of his stories, are extremely overblown. They're very. Um, exaggerated sometimes uh, but some very often at the core of them there's some kind of extremely uh, relatable human feelings like some powerful yearning some powerful desires um, and uh, you know that kind of tension between sort of the cheesy and the profound um, really is beautifully captured in, the, in, in that movie I think um, perhaps better than I think any of the other Rampo films but you're right there have been so many adaptations of his films um, there was a whole spate of them like during the 1970s um, during the fad for what was called Pink Ega um, Pink mm -hmm. movies, um, which were kind of like these sort of semi-erotic almost like soft porn kind of uh, adaptations of stories Um I think one of the reasons that like there have been so many Rampo adaptations is because he's a very visual writer. Like um, he's obsessed with uh, camera tricks, with um, you know, like the seeing things through tiny holes, you know, in the walls. Um, you know, telescopes, uh, binoculars, all sorts of visual equipment, and so I think those things relate really nicely to um, you know. To, to filmmakers. You know, filmmakers are naturally interested in seeing things through cameras. And so I think that he's especially appealing to, to, to um, writers like that. Oh, there's one more film that I have to mention by Rampo, an adaptation. There's one called The Caterpillar, Imomushi in Japanese. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a truly, like, you know, gut-turning experience to watch it. It's about a, a guy who is severely wounded, um, if you can even call it that, barely left alive um, in the Russo-Japanese War. And, uh, and you know, he's basically turned into, like, a large caterpillar without his arms and legs. And so um, it's about his life and his relationship with his wife. It's, it's, it's uh, the film version that was made um, probably about 10 years ago. Um, I think it's really gut-wrenching. Yeah. 
Oh, by the way, and that story, the caterpillar, uh, was one of Rampa's most famous stories because it got him in trouble with the censors in the mid nineteen thirties when um, when uh, he went to reprint that story. It was originally written, uh, you know, earlier uh, toward in his career, but when he went to to reprint it, you know, during the era of like Japan's rising militarism. Um, the censor said, absolutely not. No fucking way are you ever going to publish this thing. And, uh, and he withdrew from the, from the literary world as a result of that. And for all of World War II, um, the years of World War II, he wrote under a pseudonym rather than actually writing under you know, his main name, Erugawa Rampo. Um, Sorry, I got off into a No, no, that's great. No, no, that's great. <laughs> yeah, um, no, the Caterpillar has been on my radar yeah. for a while, too. Um, yeah, uh, Caterpillar was also part of the, the Rampo Noir Was that anthology. that anthology? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I have seen that. you work on? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there is a separate Caterpillar from, from 2010 also. So that's, that's right. Yeah, that's the one that I'm thinking of, uh, the, the, the one from 2010. And, but you're right, there is that anthology, Rampo Noir, um, and, and that's a really interesting anthology because it shows you very clearly how productive Rampo's stories are. I mean, you know, so many people from, you know, different, different uh, parts of the Japanese, you know, cinematic universe were coming together to, you know, to adapt his stories. It's, they've, the stories just appeal to so many people. Yeah, and then the characters like Kokoro Kechi's been in a bazillion things ever since, and so on and so forth. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I one time uh, was describing uh, uh, Akechi Kogoro, that character, as Japan's version of Sherlock Holmes, and a Japanese friend who was sitting there next to me said, no, 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 Sherlock Holmes is the Western version of Akechi Kogoro, which I thought was really <laughs> Yeah, like, I mean, he's he's so well-known. That particular character, just like Sherlock Holmes is known in the English-speaking world, Akechi Kogoro is, is so well-known in Japan. Um, all, you know, like, the Akechi Kogoro stories are about as popular in Japan amongst young people as, like, the Hardy Boys uh, mm. stories are, you know, amongst boys in the U.S. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it kind of belongs to a little bit of a different age, but still very well-known. Yeah. Um, well, how did the, you know, the, the Godzilla translation, uh, land on your doorstep and how did it get, uh, with, uh, University of Minnesota Press and all that? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I'm, I'm glad that you asked me about Edogo Arampo first, um, because, uh, uh, this, the writer who wrote Godzilla was, uh, one of the writers who Edogo Arampo discovered, um, uh, after World War II ended, Edogawa Rampo started a new magazine called Hoseki. Um, I think in English it's usually translated as The Jewel. Um, and it became uh, Japan's foremost magazine for mystery and adventure fiction um, in the immediate post-war period. And uh, they put out with their early um, magazines a like call for new writers. And um, Kayama... Uh, who wrote Godzilla, was one of the people who responded to that. And Erogao Rampo um, was one of the people who helped discover him and get him published for the very first time. So there was this interesting kind of connection between, with this writer that I already liked. And so I knew Kayama's name as a result of that. But honestly, I didn't kind of put 
like Kayama's name together with Godzilla until until like fairly recently. This is kind of embarrassing, but um, I was in Japan during the 2011 disasters, uh, the Fukushima meltdown and everything. And after I came back to America, I started teaching some classes about Japan, Japan and, and literature uh, about disaster. And so I originally decided to stick in Godzilla in there as kind of a fun bit of a diversion, you know, for students. Like, we're reading all this heavy, heavy literature about disasters and death and, you know, that stuff like that. I thought, well, you know, Godzilla, yes, there's a lot of death and a lot of destruction, but, you know, I thought there might be a, a bit of a, you know, a change of pace. Um, and as I was showing this to my students, I noticed that, you know, the credits begin to roll at the very beginning. The very first credit says, produced by Tanaka Tomoyuki, um, Sorry, I keep on putting the, the names in all the Japanese order because that's the way I'm used to saying them. Um, in English, it would be Tomoyuki Tanaka, I guess. Um, but so, so he was the first credit. And then immediately under that, the second credit is based on the work of Kayama Shigeru, based on the work of Shigeru Kayama. And I was like, what? You know, he had something to do with this? Hold on a second. How is it that this this famous, you know, science fiction writer from the mid, you know, mid-20th century was involved with this and I've never heard about that. Like, that's crazy. Is there a book? And so I looked and it took me all of about 10 seconds to 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 do a search in, in Japanese and discover that yeah, he did the he not only wrote um, the first draft of the screenplay of Godzilla for Toho Studios, but he also wrote these novels, these novelizations, which were published um, just after the first movie came out, um, close to the time of the second movie. Godzilla raids again. And I was like, wow, how is this possible that there is this book out here in Japan? It's on the bookshelf, it's in print, it's in every major bookstore, and no one's ever translated it. Um, I began to look and poke around in you know, some of the uh, stuff that's been written in English about Godzilla, and you know, everyone treats Godzilla solely 100% as a cinematic phenomenon. And of course, Godzilla is a cinematic phenomenon, but there's also you know, this other kind of literary dimension to it as well. And so that intrigued me, and I began to, you know, investigate further. Um, uh, I, I also realized right about that time that a French translation came out, and uh, an Italian translation came out. Uh, and so I'm like, well, gosh, there's, why isn't there an English one? So um, it was it was my idea to 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 propose it. Um, I did a sample translation. Um, then I wrote to the to the publisher in Japan to get permission. Uh, then I sent it to University of Minnesota Press. Um, and you you would ask why Minnesota Press? Uh, the the reason is because they published a handful of other science, Japanese science fiction novels in translation. And I thought, well, you know, given their interest in in um, uh, in Japanese science fiction, they seem like the right publisher for the project. Um, I have to say, like, it was thrilling for me to send it to them, to send them the sample, because I've never had anyone respond yes so quickly <laughs> to a proposal. Like, usually, like, I, you know, I send off, like, a proposal for, you know, a book that I want to translate, and then, you know, a month goes by, two months go by, you know, maybe I'll hear yes, maybe I'll hear no. Um, if I hear no, then I got to start all over again. But um, you know, when I sent this when I sent this proposal off to them, you know, immediately the editor is like, "Okay, this is something we definitely have to pursue." So that felt really good. So, um, so a question that I had about um, Shigeru Kayama 
is uh, so you mention in um, in your essay in uh, that's included in the book, which was great. It's actually the first thing I read in the oh. book um, before the stories. Uh, but you you mentioned that Shigeru Kayama is actually a pen name, and that his real name is uh, Koji Yamada. Uh-huh. And so I was wondering um, if the if this pen name of his had any special significance because I know like Ooh. Edogawa Rampo is supposed to sound like. Edgar Allan Poe, and um, like there's a, a contemporary Japanese fiction writer who I really like, uh, Asamatsu Kin, who his oh. pen name is a reference to the Welsh writer Arthur Machen. So was that the case yeah. for Kayama, or you know, I, I'll be honest and say that I don't know the the reason that he chose this particular pen name. So yeah, I'm I'm hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, okay. I don't oh. have any you know great insight in that. But um, it is it is interesting. Like in the uh, early part of the 20th century, it was really, 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 really common for Japanese writers to take pen names, um, and so yeah, he was just one of many people that did it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm afraid I don't know the exact reason for that one. Oh, that's fine. No. Yeah, uh, I mean, even if you look at like Shotaro Ishinomori or Gonagai, they're they're writing under pseudonyms also. So that's kind of. Uh, yeah, true. Yeah, uh, um, you know it's it's interesting. Uh, Kayama he started out uh, his career not in writing. He he worked for the Japanese Ministry of uh, Finance, um, which is you know like a government major government bureau. Um, all through World War II, he was trained as an economist. Even though I think his his heart was in literature, his heart was in paleontology. Um, he you know he worked in this other in completely other field, you know, for much of his career. And so there may be, there may have been a certain sense that he wanted to create a new start for himself with his writing. That makes sense. Uh, so, so you mentioned paleontology and I mean, definitely what, what we get exposed to of his work is very kind of monster, monster centric. Uh, yeah. Like you, you were familiar with him like outside of Godzilla. So like how much had you read and, and kind of what was the focus of, of, of what you'd heard about him. Yeah, so um, I had heard about him largely through this connection to, to Edogo Rampo at first. Um, he, he really seems to like monsters. Um, Kayama does write a great deal about monsters. Um, um, quite a lot of his stories are about people who go out from Japan into the either the colonies or, or um, you know, South Pacific islands, which are... Um, still in the process of uh, undergoing technological development and, and finding something there, um, finding something that's that's unusual. Um, for instance, like his first story, the one that won the contest and was published in the magazine Hoseki, The Jewel, was about uh, some Japanese folks who um, encounter an, uh, an, another form of hominid um, in uh, Indonesia and uh, way down there in the, in the south, um, kind of in an undeveloped uh, part of the country. So, um, so he, you know, he liked these stories about, you know, going out there into the world and, and finding um, monsters, you know, not and, and creatures and animals that are other than, you know, the things that we, we know about in our modern society. So, um, so that's one of the things that I'd heard about him. Um, he also has a, you know, a couple of like really crazy stories that I had read beforehand. Um, he has this really fascinating story about a, a woman who goes to a South Pacific Island, um, and, 
uh, falls in love with <laughs> falls in love with an animal and uh, and you know ends up spending her her entire life you know living there with the with the with the animal um, you know kind of becoming a um, um, be, you know like you know becoming like a gigantic lizard herself um, oh. so <laughs> it's a yeah she was at the beginning of the story she's a, she's a lesbian uh, but then she she uh, she uh, crosses over and you know into the world of um, animal love so I mean really kind of you know surprising stories for for the 1950s um, I think that you know some of the stories uh, that he writes are quite sensational. Um, you know, he's definitely trying to kind of get a surprise, you know, rise out of his readers. Um, like in that story that I just mentioned about the about the lesbian who falls in love with a um, um, with a gigantic lizard. But um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, interesting. I'd stuff. love to see the, <laughs> a nineteen fifties uh, Toho adaptation of that story. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, you also mentioned in your essay that uh, he did a lot of uh, detective fiction. Was that usually, you know, straight detective stories, or was there more um, of a sci-fi slant, like something like you know X Files kind of thing? Yeah, it's more the latter. Um, so he doesn't write too much fiction that is uh, like kind of the very traditional detective fiction. Um, and as I say this, I'm already thinking of counterexamples to, to undermine my, what I'm saying right here. But, um, but, uh, you know, he, he is, he, he, um, there is in a lot of his stories, like a process of encountering something strange and then trying to get to the bottom of it. And, you know, it's, sometimes it's not necessarily a crime per se, but, uh, but, you know, a strange discovery. Um, so in a way, that kind of like process of ratiocination where you discover something and then kind of, you know, work logically through it and try to get to the bottom of it. Um, you know, th that works for stories about science fiction that works for, for detective fiction as well. So, you know, in his work, the, the boundaries between these things, which I think in, Contemporary America, we consider quite separate, you know, detective fiction over here, science fiction, you know, on a whole different shelf. Like, in his brain, those things weren't necessarily separated, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he's fun. He was super prolific, I should mention. Um, his, uh, his complete works stretches to, is it 13 or 14 big fat volumes? Um, and, you know, I haven't read them all because, you know, that's just, you know, a heck of a lot of writing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's, they're wild and they're crazy. Sometimes they're funny. Yeah, I, I hope the world gets some more Kayama. Fingers crossed. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> We'd, you know, definitely like, like to see more of it um you know before we before we started recording you had mentioned um you know kind of kind of playing off of this topic already that um you know kayama seems to have had a real interest in what today we would call uh like cryptozoology you know uh, these yeah. kinds of monsters that are these sort of hidden animals in remote inaccessible places what we call cryptids or in japan what are called uh yuma um and and so i'm i'm curious based on the stuff that you have read um, how much of this seems to be a, a, a feature in Kayama's work? And did you do you have any sense of whether this was uh, a subject that he was like really invested in? Like, was he like a believer that these sort of creatures, like the Orang Pendek, were really yeah. out there, or did he just think this was good fiction? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned the Orang Pendek because the Orang Pendek uh, 
story that he wrote early on in his career is the one that won the contest that I mentioned earlier. And so his first piece ever was about Oren Pendek, um, which are this hominid race that supposedly lives in, is it Borneo? Um, somewhere in Indonesia. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, from the very beginning of his career, that, that interest in cryptids is there, this interest in kind of non, you know, standard <laughs> zoology, I guess, um, is, uh, was, was there. Um, and, and I think that that's a driving factor in his work. I mean, Godzilla can definitely be seen in that light as well, right? You know. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah strange monster appears out of the sea and, you know, they try to get to the bottom of who and what he is. So, um, yeah, so that definitely is, is, is a big theme that runs throughout his career. And, uh, and, and the stuff that you have read of his, um, have you come across anything that you felt maybe could be considered like a, a foreshadowing of Godzilla. I know I've seen some articles that have mentioned that there's like a 1952 short story he wrote called um, the Jira monster seems to be how it's translated over here where that's sometimes cited as a precursor to Godzilla. And then oh. I came across another one um, that I think the English translation would be something like monster spectator that sometimes is, is cited. I don't know if there's oh. anything that you uh, came across. Yeah, um, the, the, yeah, uh, I mean, so, uh, I mean, he does seem to have been particularly interested in lizards and, and reptiles, um, and, and that seems to be there from the, from the very beginning. Um, he was, he, we do know from his sort of non-fictional accounts, um, of his own life and, um, and development that he, had read a great deal about paleontology when he was young. And so, um, so those interests were definitely there. Um, and, and I, so I think that there are hints, like, as you mentioned in, in that one story, the, the Jira story, um, of, of, you know, hints of Godzilla to come, but, you know, they didn't take on the, you know, this, uh, you know, splendid kind of monstrous kaiju sized form that they, uh, did until Godzilla came along. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, speaking of that, um, uh, the the word kaiju itself um, is that is that something that Kayama really popularized? Because that's uh, I, I haven't really encountered it um, prior to, uh, to 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 Godzilla. Like, you know, you look at the original King Kong publicity materials, and it's always kaibutsu this, kaibutsu that, and never kaiju. So I thought that was that was interesting. That's true. Um, it doesn't seem like the word kaiju is especially common in Japanese um, until you know, Godzilla really helped popularize it. However, the word did exist. Um, I, I was looking a little while ago in a, the Nihongo Daijiten, which is like kind of like the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, it, it gives lots of citations for particular words. And um, when I looked up the word kaiju, it's at the earliest... Um, uh, uh, quotation that they provide as a sample of that word came from the writing of um, a writer called uh, Takizawa Baking, who lived from uh, what was it, 1767 to I think 1848 or so, and um, and he wrote a lot of kind of you know quirky stories. Um, Is this uh, the guy that wrote the Hikenden? Yes, exactly. Okay. That's right. He wrote the uh, Nanso Satomi Hakenden, um, the Chronicle of Dog uh, Eight 
uh, hero dogs, so the Satomi clan. Um, is, uh, I'm not quite sure how to translate that exactly, but um, but yeah, he wrote this uh, this huge book, and uh, yeah, he was really interested in animals, and so he, he used the word kaiju um, in somewhere in his work, um, according to the dictionary, and I was so I was I was really intrigued to find out that the word at least was popular, or, or at least was known, I don't know if it was popular or not, but it was at least known um, during the Edo period when he was writing. Um, the Edo period when he was writing was, of course, this time when people were fascinated by yokai, um, all kinds of strange creatures. And so when I found out that the, that the word um, kaiju did have, um, you know, examples from the Edo period, I was like, oh, well, gosh, that makes sense. Yeah, uh... So, so what I found in my research was the, I it, I think it was eighteen forty four, and it was uh, he he was talking about a monkey with wings was uh, was was referred to as a kaiju. So it's a very different kind of like, uh, mental image from from what we see in the the whole like Eiji Tsuburaya aesthetic that we have today. Oh, yeah. Kevin, I have to I have to modify that because that yeah. was part of the the article that i just did on japanese cryptozoology because yeah, oh, yeah? So it's, yeah so it's the kaiju I, I know like you note in that one article you wrote a long time ago that it's um you know this loan word that comes over from china and the the classic of the mountains and seas yes and apparently yeah that particular creature that's mentioned in the mountains and seas there's a long-standing um mistranslation where it's been rendered as like winged monkey but that's not actually what it is in that text it's just like some kind of uh ape that lives up in the mountains it almost sounds more like a yeti or something so yeah yeah Yeah, i'm glad that you mentioned that there were classical chinese you know uh you know uh examples of, of the word kaiju or you know however it's pronounced in chinese um one of the one of the things that's a little bit complicated about classical Chinese is that, uh, you know, very often, uh, like when a adjective modifies a noun that comes immediately after afterward, it it's sometimes becomes a little bit difficult to tell if they're a compound, if they're like kind of fixed together, or if it's just like one word modifying the other. Do you know what I mean? So, so like the, the word, um, uh, Kai, you know, uh, meaning kind of strange or bizarre or, you know, um, suspicious or uh, quirky. Um, in Chinese, gui is, was, a, was a very common word. And so um, so it's a little bit hard to, to figure out, I think, in looking at some of the old Chinese classical examples, whether or not, you know, this, this word was, um, you know, a gui or kai was just sort of being applied to the, to the, to the secondary character, which means beast, as a just an adjective or if that's like a single set word, do you know what I mean? So anyway, that's, that's one of the kind of like interesting mysteries about the history of the word Kaiju that I'm, that I kind of want to look into, but I haven't solved that problem yet. That's really interesting though, that it, it, um, it was used by Bakin. So, um, I don't, this is, might be an odd question, but do you know Glenn Wally? Oh yeah. I, I work anyway. Yeah. 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 He's translating the Hikenden right now for Cornell. So, Uh, Oh, fantastic! So um, I'm I'm curious. I I emailed him briefly back in um, 2020 because I had a question about the Hikinden. So uh-huh. I, I wonder if he's if he's come across this reference of kaiju. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Something to investigate for sure. That's um, that's an enormous undertaking, the Hikinden. Wow. 
Good for him. So you, you'd mentioned just how prolific Kayama's career was and how much stuff he had out there. Um, in, in your estimation, how, you know, how popular and influential of a writer is he um, in Japan overall, would you say? So uh, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. Um, when he came onto the scene, he suddenly like, just exploded. Like Within the first couple of years of his writing career, he was writing all over the place. I mean, he published an astounding number of pieces in his first couple of years. Um, so many that I have a hard time imagining how one human being could do it. Um, so he was definitely like a name that suddenly became you know fairly well known. Um, but but he was always uh, a somewhat pulpy writer, I'd say. Um, I, I don't mean to use the word pulpy in a derogatory fashion at all. But you know he was writing for popular um, uh, for popular uh, forums and, and popular magazines. So. Um, I'm not sure that he necessarily had the kind of staying power that um, that some other some other writers did, um, who were writing for kind of a, a mixture of more highbrow magazines and and, and popular magazines. Um, it's it's interesting. Um, not a huge number of his works remain in print today. Mm. Like you know, a lot a lot of them have gone out of print. Um, and so for a lot of them to, to read them, you're going to have to turn to like the complete works that was published, you know, well, decades ago. Yeah. So, um, you know, his, I'd say his stock has really fallen. Hmm. Um, and Godzilla is by far and away the thing that he's best known for. Well, yeah, it's, you know, such a big franchise that one's, it's easy to see why that's the one that, you know, is the easiest to find. Totally, totally, and, and and you know, like I, um, I just have a, like a little bit of a bone to pick with like all the kind of you know scholars who who have written about Godzilla. Like, I, I was really amazed when I when I began investigating this, and um, you know, like like a lot of the books that that talk about Godzilla, especially you know the ones in English in particular, you know completely leave his name out of the story at all. Um, in fact, <laughs> let me just tell you a little story. So when I, when I, you know, became, when it became clear to me that, uh, you know, that Kayama's role in creating Godzilla was enormous, you know, he, he wrote the first draft of the screenplay, you know, for Toho Studios, like his, he basically created the story, the outlines of the story that we know today. It's true that like the people at the, um, you know, at the uh, at the studios, kind of rewrote it. They massaged it. Um, you know, they they changed quite a lot of small details. But you know, the story is more or less what Kayama gave us. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the English language uh, scholarship and and even some of the Japanese scholarship leaves him out of the picture altogether. Um, in the English language <laughs> Godzilla webpage, there's like he's only mentioned just very, very, very briefly. So I went into the Wikipedia webpage some time ago and and tried to uh, add in a paragraph where I was talking about his contributions to Godzilla, about the fact that he wrote the first draft of the screenplay and um, and so on. But um, immediately it was taken down by somebody. Isn't who, that annoying? Who, <laughs> it's always the worst. Yeah. Yeah, there's like Wikipedia so much. Wikipedia is the worst. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of is, yeah, yeah. So I was like, yeah, was, uh, you know, it's like I, I want the story to be known. I want that part of the story to be known. But, um, but yeah, unfortunately, it's, uh, you know, it hasn't really 
you know, had the light shown shown on it until now. Well, your 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 whole um, thing about him kind of being, you know, the the unsung hero, uh, and and uh, more or less, or you know, the because Godzilla, the when you say who created Godzilla, there's a handful of names that right. go with that, and and right. so him being one of them. I mean, what would you say? You know, if you had to just think of a couple things, are are maybe the biggest things that he contributed to the character of Godzilla as we, as we know him. Yeah. So when he, um, we do have a uh, copy of this screen play that he submitted to Toho. Um, it's, uh, and in fact, it's in the same volume that contained the novellas that I translated. If you, you get it in Japan. Um, unfortunately, Toho studios wouldn't give us the permission <laughs> to, to, to translate that screenplay. So I would, otherwise it would be in the book, you know, along with the novellas. Um, but, uh, in, in the, in the screenplay, he describes a lot of the kind of plot of the story, but he doesn't describe some of the things like the, the, the look of Godzilla. Mm-hmm. He's actually quiet about the the look of Godzilla, I think because he wanted to leave that up to the people at the studios to kind of work out for themselves. But, um, but the idea that, you know, he was, uh, he was a monster that was, uh, uh, that was awakened by uh, atomic blasts in the Pacific. It, yes, that, that idea was planted in his head by the producer, but, um, but he really developed it to, to a great degree. Um, uh, he, uh, you know, he wrote a lot into the story about, you know, the, the relationship between Japan and the United States, things that didn't necessarily make them make it their way into the film. Um, um, it was, it was, uh, so, you know, uh, he, you know, he came up with the idea of the oxygen destroyer. Um, he, you know, he de- decided that there should be a romance, you know, in order to kind of keep this, uh, keep people engaged. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, he, yeah, so you know, he he basically created like the the central conflicts of the film. Um, he he also is really obsessed with the question of the ethical use of science. Like, what is the responsibility of a scientist? Um, if you you know, he, if you like Dr. Serizawa in the film create a weapon of mass destruction, should you share that with the world, or should you keep that hidden away? You know, what is the ethical thing for the scientist to do? Um, you know, he, he really wants to foreground those ethical questions um, in Godzilla. And I think that that's the great contribution here. You know, he made a, a story about, about how science should operate in the post-nuclear world. It's interesting you bring up, uh, he came up with, you know, the romance angle, and that's, like, really not in the novel version that he later wrote. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's true. It's um it's there kind of in latent form, but um, but uh, he he's just sort of re um shuffled the characters a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you watch the uh, the film version of the story, um, so it, just to back up a second, there's basically kind of like three versions of the story. I guess there's the one that he that he you know submitted to Toho Studios. There's the one that Toho Studios kind of massaged and put out as the film. And then, uh, and then a year later in 1955, you know, a, a few months after the film came out in 1954, he put out the, the novelized version, the, the one that I've translated. So, so in each version, the romance kind of takes on a slightly different uh, uh, cast, I guess I should say. Um, 
like in the um, the novel version that I've translated, um, there the character of Ogata is kind of the lead character in the film, the handsome, uh, you know, guy who yeah yeah he's kind of a background character in the in the book. Totally, totally, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like so, the and and the romance is kind of refocused on the character Shinkichi and Emiko. Um, uh, so, uh, and in the film version, the character Shinkichi is only kind of a side character, right, right. So, yeah, so so there's some def- definitely some differences between the versions. Uh, so earlier, you used the. Um use the term pulp to describe uh kayama um and uh and i I don't take that as a negative thing because i'm a big fan of american uh pulp fiction i love i love that sort of stuff and that was actually something i was really um interested to talk to you about was this question of like what was the sort of industrial context for a writer um like kayama because really it's it's only been pretty recently that genre fiction, speculative fiction, has kind of come up in the world. And if you go back to like the early 20th century, you know, it's all being published in pulp magazines like Weird Tales and Astounding Stories. And writers like H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard are paid a, a pittance and they live in poverty and, and die poorly as a result. And then after the Second World War, things are a little bit better for folks like Ray Bradbury or John W. Campbell because they're getting their stuff turned into films, but their work is still not being really respected, you know, critically. Um, so was the situation similar in Japan or different for writers like Kayama? Yeah. So um, there was a, uh, the first kind of like major wave of what I think we might kind of call like something like pulp fiction um, in Japan came during the 1920s and 30s as there was a massive explosion in the, in the publishing industry. Um, Like between the 1915 and 1930 or something like that, the number of magazines that existed in Japan quadrupled. Um, We know that because all Japanese magazines were forced to register themselves with the state and um, and submit themselves to the censorship mechanism. So there's very detailed records. Um, uh, The the publishing scene contracted significantly around World War II um, because of heavy censorship and then also paper shortages um, as the war went on. Um, But once World War II ended and in 1945, um, the Japanese public was starving for literature, you know, literature that wasn't like nationalistic. You know, they were starving for good stories. They were starving for all kinds of stuff. And so during the 1940s and into the 1950s, there was, an, again, like a second explosion in the publishing world where, um, where suddenly there were so many magazines and, um, it, you know, from extremely kind of highbrow stuff all the way down to, uh, to you know, the most uh, kind of popular, fun, quirky stuff that you can imagine. Um, so there was a lot of opportunity for a person who wanted to write, um, especially in the immediate post-war period. And that's really when Kayama got his start. You know, he got his start right at that moment after World War II, as the publishing industry was, was beginning to, uh, to re-expand again. And so, you know, he rode that wave, you know, to, to success. Um, um, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he was able to, to, to live, I think, relatively well within that particular, uh, 
uh, subsection of the you know literary universe for a long time. Um, he doesn't seem to have suffered terribly <laughs> from what I from what I've read about his life. You know, it, it sounds like he, he he wasn't necessarily very poor. He he was able to do quite well. So so that was really interesting. Um, the fact that he you know got connected with Toho Studios and made a couple of movies for and with them, um, uh, it was uh, you know definitely helped his career. You know, Godzilla of course is the most famous. But um, but then um, he also worked on Toho's movie The Mysterians mm-hmm. and um, and then uh, half one called- human right or monster snowman or uh, there's a few titles for that one. Yeah, yeah, and honestly, um, yeah, I, I I know less about that one, but um, but yeah, it's uh, his uh, his work with Toho Studios uh, went for a little while. But it's very interesting. I wrote a little bit about this in the um, in the afterward. Um, it, his work with uh, with Toho Studios uh, on Godzilla, you know, he, I think he they got along very well for the first movie. But then um, after the first movie, you know, they, Godzilla was such a success, right, coming right out the gate that immediately Toho Studios turned around and said, "Hey guys, you know, we, hey, we want you to write another movie for us. We we want you to do a second Godzilla." Um, sequel. And he's like, guys, don't you remember? You know, we killed Godzilla at the end of the first movie. How can we possibly do another movie? You're insane. Well, yeah, it sounds like even he was, <laughs> after it, just the first sequel, and now there's, you know, 30, practically 40 Godzilla movies. It seems like, you know, right. right right off the bat, he was almost kind of disgusted that it had be, it was becoming this commercialized sort of franchise thing. And when he was just like, you know, I'm I'm going to get out while I'm ahead. <laughs> Don't ask me to write another one of these. Yeah, totally, totally. So it, it, uh, there's a, an anecdote that I came across that was so kind of interesting and revealing that I had to stick it into the afterword of the book. Um, he was uh, apparently around the time of 1955, um, about the time that the second movie came out. Um, and I should mention that he did work on the screenplay for the second movie, um, but that was the last he did. Um he was in a dentist studio, a dentist office, and the um, and there was a Life magazine sitting there, and it had a bunch of pictures of dinosaurs in it. And I guess the little kid, you know, who happened to be there and, and saw it, and he started going like, "Oh, th- look, it's Godzilla! Look, it's Angiris!" You know, he started pointing to it and, and and saying like, you know, "Ooh, you know, here are the kaiju that I've seen on the screen," and uh, and that like led Kayama to realize that uh, this. This movie that he had made, the first Godzilla, you know, he had really wanted it to be a very serious meditation on the horrors of nuclear weapons, um, the horrors of nuclear war. Um, but you know, he, the creation that he made, Godzilla, ended up being loved by children, and and uh, you know, as evidenced by this kid, you know, that happened to be there in the uh, dentist's office with him. So um, he reflected on that and thought, you know, Godzilla is really morphing into something that I hadn't anticipated at the beginning. He's kind of morphing into um, this new thing that you know that kids are kids are loving. Yeah, and uh, and I think he began to feel like you know my goal of creating this parable about uh, nuclear weapons was not successful, and I think that's really unfortunate because you know. Uh, it's sad to me that that he was disappointed by what Godzilla had become. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, you'd mentioned um, his other, uh, like he he wrote the novelizations for the Mysterians and um, 
uh, I guess uh, I know you said you weren't too familiar with Half Human, and uh, but I apparently he also has a credit on the Godzilla vs. Hedera manga adaptation. Oh, interesting. Um, okay, yeah. Are you familiar with any of those? Um, I know you said a lot of his stuff is hard to come by these days. Yeah, the the manga adaptation I didn't know about. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, thank you for that. <clears throat> have you uh, have you had a chance to read? Have you come across the Mysterians one at all? Um, I, I've watched the movie, of course, but, right? Uh, but I, yeah, but I haven't seen the. Um, no, I haven't seen a manga adaptation. Who was who the artist who did it? Uh, Kevin, do you know? Uh, I'd have to. I'd have to look it up. Okay. Well, that's oh, that's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. That sounds interesting. Um, you know that that credit might be. I, I wonder if he was actually directly involved with it. Um, I know that sometimes things that he was involved with got his name on the cover, even though he wasn't necessarily involved with mm. that particular form. Like, and for for instance, the, the 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 example that I'm thinking of right now is, you know, after he submitted the screenplay to Toho for Godzilla in 1954 in in May, I think it was, um, a couple of months later. Even before Godzilla came out in the theaters, um, Toho Studios um, got a ghostwriter there in the studios to do a radio play version of Godzilla. And that was aired in, I think it was seven installments uh, over the course of late 1940, uh, 1954 in order to kind of like prepare the audience for this you know, new wonderful science fiction movie that was coming out you know, at the end of the year. Um, so... So that radio drama version of Godzilla um, is has Kayama's name on the cover, but actually he didn't write it. Mm. You know, he wasn't he wasn't directly involved with it. We know from other accounts that it was you know some ghost writers at Toho Studios that that worked on it. So so that, so I think that like sometimes there there are things like that that happen um, where you know he gave the idea you know put the idea out there in the world and and then other people kind of turned it into you know, a particular form. So when I hear about the manga, I, I kind of I yeah. begin to wonder. And, and that would something. be early seventies. So there's like practically 20 years that he's not doing anything with any of these Toho movies. So you might be, yeah, yeah this is a good theory you have there. He died in 1975 and, um, and towards the last few years of his life, I don't think he was writing a great deal. Yeah. So that, that might also be a hint. Okay. Good to know. Um, well, I wanted to ask, you know, when when you are translating a novel, um, huh? you know, every writer has their own voice, their own style of writing. Um, yeah. Do you do you ever struggle with a, a situation where you're trying to find, you know, the middle ground between maybe preserving that author's writing style or their prose style and making it digestible for you know a foreign audience? Is there ever a time where Oh yeah, um, yeah. Where you know you you kind of wrestle with okay, if I translate this, I run the risk of losing the the signature voice here. And how do you kind of compromise in those situations? That's that's a really good question, and, and it's not an easy one to answer. <laughs> um, like uh, you're totally right that every writer has their own distinctive voice. Like to return to you know the writer that we mentioned earlier in this uh, this conversation, um, Edogawa Rampo, you know the guy who was inspired by Edgar Allan Poe and wrote all those quirky detective fiction uh, pieces. 
he um, he was very, 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 very garrulous in his style. Like he writes long, meandering sentences that that you know they sound like there's somebody speaking, but somebody speaking in long run-on sentences. And um, and so those don't always translate so well in English, where I think you know um, American readers might have a little bit less patience for uh, for run-on sentences. Um, by comparison, for instance, like Kayama, like was relatively direct and uh, concrete in his description, um, but you know he he has his own distinctive voice too. Like for instance, Kayama uses tons of onomatopoeias. I've never right. trans a writer who uses this many onomatopoeias. Like there are scenes like in the book where you know where Godzilla is smashing through Tokyo and you know. You know, trampling things right and left, and and this the number of sounds on the page gets almost like humorous, like kabang, ow, crash, boom. Yeah, there, like, there's also like parts where it's like something mundane, where it's like someone turned on the light switch, click, and it's like right. yes, yeah. <laughs> really strange. It is, yeah, yeah. He he like loved sound, and and um and I thought at first like you know like the in the, that like that case that you just mentioned, you know, when I if I'm translating that thing about turning on the light, do I need to include the sound click? You know, there's a part of me that thinks as a you know as a you know contemporary 21st uh, century American guy, like oh we don't need that, but then um you know I realized that all the sound effects are part of his unique style. And so in the end, I decided to try to keep as much crashing, noisy sounds, you know, in the text as possible. So, so there always is always a sort of negotiation between, I think like what a, uh, 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 an American reader might be willing to put up with and, um, and, and, and what the author's voice sounds like. Um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I really, you know, I really try to hard to find that particular writer's voice inside of me. It's, it's like it's hard to describe this process. I sometimes feel like, like I'm, you know, like a witch or a shaman or something like that, calling, you know, the the spirits of the author into me or something like that. I'm I'm being a little bit silly as I say that, but but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it's hard to sort of you know evoke that particular voice at, at, at times, um, and so. That that always takes a lot of massaging, like you know the the first draft of a of a text um, sometimes will not take me that long, but actually then the polishing of it, like the going back and revising and revising and trying to find exactly the right word to get exactly the right nuance can take a really long time. So yeah, the revisions are, are what always take a lot of time in translation. Yeah, like I I could kind of feel. Some of that struggle when, uh, like, there's there's a part where you have like his men refer to him as Oyaji, and then oh. you have you know a, 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 a kind of like a parenthetical aside being like, okay, this is the the, the context for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> uh, and I, I I know that that's that that kind of stuff. You know, it it is a longstanding translation debate, and uh, I mean, I'm sure there's there's a whole spectrum of you know the people that would be like. How dare you use the word kaiju instead of translating it to monster? You know, like how how do you how do you walk that type tightrope? Basically, <laughs> is there is a tightrope there? And and just to give you one example, when I submitted this to the text, um, there's one passage somewhere, and I don't even remember exactly where it is in the book, but there's one passage somewhere where a, a, a kid is separated from his mother, and he calls out to his mother, and in, in the Japanese he calls out okasan, okasan. 
And um, I, I translated that as mommy, mommy, thinking, you know, maybe that's what an American kid might say if he was crying and, you know, abandoned, alone. And uh, the press came back and they said, well, would you consider putting this mommy uh uh, back into Japanese and, and romanizing it as Oka-san. And, and I said, I, I thought about it for a while. I was kind of surprised by that request. And I thought, and I, I said to them, no. <laughs> and the reason I said no is because I think that sometimes like using Japanese words like that are very ordinary, um, it, it kind of gives a kind of like too exoticizing flair sometimes. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, how, what, what, where do you walk, walk that line? It's, and the, the place where I come down, I think is a little bit different for every project. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't notice other honorifics in the book, so it would be weird to have, you know, son in, in one particular instance and not in other yeah. places. That's true. That's true. I, I did struggle with the honorifics. Um, honorifics are always a problem. Um, uh, for, for listeners who might not know about Japanese, um, there are different ways of speaking to a person that is kind of above you on the social totem pole um, and uh, honorific language. And uh, that comes through. There's a lot of it in this book. Um, you know, when the characters are calm and they're they're speaking very rationally to each other and Tokyo's not being destroyed by a big monster, you know, um, they might speak in very polite language. But then when they get hurried and flustered and their lives are on the line, suddenly all that polite language goes out the window and they're speaking very directly to each other. Like, you know, some of those like differences are really hard to capture in English, which is a language where we don't have those distinctions. Like in Japanese, there's you can probably say the word "go," you know, in ten different ways depending on the social relationship between the speakers, you know, uh, and the listener. So, yeah, it's uh, there's not just a single word. <laughs> there's in English, like how many ways can you say "go"? I don't know. Uh, another difficulty, and I don't know if this actually came up or not, but you know, the second book being set around Osaka, did you run into the Kansai dialect in that? Yeah, there actually that's a, that's a good question. There is a little bit of Kansai dialect in there. Yeah, there is, and um, and I dialect. Um, I remember when I took that very first ever translation class seminar in in, in graduate school, um, where I translated the Town of Cats, you know, the uh, the story that Justin was referring to earlier. Um, I remember that the teacher said the biggest headaches in the world of translation are dialect and humor. And so whenever I come across a dialect, I, I remember that. Um, what do you do? Like, you know, there's a part of me that's like tempted to try to render that into, you know, some dialect. But then um, if you did render that into maybe some approximation of Southern speech, does that equate to Osaka dialect in Western Japan? I, I don't know. So I, I tend not to, to try to reproduce dialect, but... Um, yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of people try to do like the, the Texas accent for for Osaka Ben, and uh, oh. I, I feel like it would be closer to like a like a Brooklyn accent, frankly myself. But you know, it's it's never one to one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. No, it's hard because it's like if you do render a dialect into another dialect, then it kind of creates this sense of correspondence, which might be kind of misleading. I don't know. Right. It's, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a real challenge. One thing, because uh, this is the I've read short stories and stuff like that. This is the first time I've read a you know novel length or novella length. 
uh, translation from uh, uh, Japanese writing. Um, and one thing that tripped me up a little bit, and at times, it, especially at the beginning, before I kind of clicked into the rhythm of it, that um, at first I was having a little bit of a hard time following, was in some of the dialogue scenes. They, they tend to go back and forth um, for a while without uh, specifying who exactly is talking. Um, I, it, yeah. is, now, yeah. is, is, is that common in Japanese prose? Is that more something uh, that was typical of, of uh, Kayama's style and rhythm, or, um, or, it, or what? That's a good question. Um, that, that, that does happen, I think, a lot more in Japanese writing than it happens in English writing. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I'd say that Kayama it takes that, that trend, you know, I wouldn't say to an extreme, but, you know, that's definitely a pronounced, you know, characteristic. And, and I think part of that might have been that he, I, I don't know exactly what his process was for writing the novellas, but I, I'm, I feel fairly certain that he had the screenplay somewhere nearby so that he could kind of like look back at the screenplay and kind of think, oh, what did they say over here? Um, so, so there may be, there may be places I suspect, um, where he, um, where he was kind of just lifting, you know, bits from the screenplay almost directly, um, and then just massaging them a little bit to kind of, you know, make them sound a bit more natural or whatever, mm. or to flush them out a bit. But yeah, I, so I, I think that, that, that trend does exist in Japanese writing and, and I've definitely noticed that Right. <laughs> there's been times when i've like been reading novels and i've been like wait hold on a second who's talking here yeah you, you gotta you gotta like backtrack to see like who started the conversation like, yeah, yeah 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 but i but i do think you 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 put uh, uh your your finger on something there when you said that that seems to be kind of pronounced in this story mm-hmm. yeah so so we, we brought up one of the, the big deviations which is shinkichi being such a, a main character in the the novelization but the other thing that kind of sticks out to me a lot is the the uh tokyo godzilla society i know like subplot um (laughs) was was that something that he already had wanted to do prior and didn't make it into the movie or did that come up afterwards do you have any insight into that because it's i i I, i'm yeah uh for for listeners maybe i should explain um there is a strange addition in the novella that that doesn't have any uh, correspondence in the film whatsoever. Um, after Godzilla begins to wreak havoc in Tokyo, um, some unscrupulous person begins to put up signs all over Tokyo, like saying things like, you know, oh, the great god Godzilla is going to be coming here. Everyone bow down and worship him and, and stuff like that. Um, and and all of Tokyo begins to wonder, who is this Godzilla society? What? We've never heard of these people. This makes no sense. Um, it later turns out in the plot that it's a criminal who had been in jail and had some prior record uh, who was putting up these posters, apparently as some way to try to to manipulate the population. And it's never really explained why, <laughs> what his motivations were. Um, he gets flattened by a building before he ever gets to, to find out. <laughs> um, it, it, I, when I read it, I was like, what the hell is this? And it, I, I, I immediately recalled um, Akira, the, the much later movie, uh, anime, um, mm. in manga, you know, where, um, where like a cult emerges and begins to worship Akira. I, uh, and, uh, and they begin to make, you know, um, like 
protests and, and demonstrations in Neo-Tokyo. I, I wondered, there's a part of me that wonders if that like little tiny subplot in Akira wasn't inspired by this, by this little subplot from Godzilla. Um, but I, I, I can't prove it. I'm, I have no idea. But, um, but it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I, I don't really know exactly where this subplot came from and why he stuck it in there. Um, my, I thought a quite a deal, a good deal about this. And I, and I'm, I, unfortunately I can't really come up with a great answer, but, um, my only thought about this is that, you know, this, uh, the film came out in 1954 and the novelization came out in 1955. So that's only 1955 is only 10 years after the end of world war two and Japan still in 1955 was having food shortages. Um, people were still turning to the black market. Um, black markets were beginning to kind of fade away for for food and stuff like that. But you know, anyone who like was alive at that particular moment in time was very familiar with the fact that like there were unscrupulous people who would use disasters to their own benefit. Um, but try to manipulate the population for for whatever nefarious purposes that they happen to have in mind. So. You know, I'm. I wonder if Kayama was using this as some kind of way to point that out. But yeah, I'm not exactly sure. That that explanation sounds a little bit weak to me. But um, yeah, I don't know. If you have any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, I mean that <laughs> may make sense. Um, actually, both both hypotheses because Acura is so heavily influenced by the post-war period and, you know, so many like allusions to like Tetsujin and stuff like that throughout it. Like, and Otomo did work on a, on a Godzilla uh, pro story in the seventies. So he's, he's familiar to some extent. So. Okay. Okay. There's an interesting connection there. Wow. Thank you. I I was also going to say, I mean, your reference to the, the sort of cult element in Akira and the time period that, um, Kayama Kayama is active right now. I don't know if you're familiar with the the famous work from the '60s, the Rush Hour of the Gods, by any chance? Hmm. Uh, I I don't know. I only know the name of it. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's a religious studies work by a guy um, H. Neil McFarlane, but it's all about how in the immediate post-war era, there's this explosion of uh, new religious movements in Japan, right? Or what you know, right. what you would less char- charitably call cults. Uh-huh. Um, and and so that's one of the things that you see show up a lot of times in in uh, some post-war fiction, and that gets referenced. And so that's the other thing that I would think of. And and I don't know if that was something, considering the fact that Kayama seems to have had an interest in in sort of strange things like cryptids and stuff. If maybe you know he also had an interest in you know fringy religious movements or that sort of thing. So. Yeah, um, I, I don't know offhand if, if that was the case, but um, but yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting connection. Yeah, thank you for that for that inspiration there. Yeah, um, you mentioned when he was doing the scenario um, to to give to them, he didn't go into detail on what Godzilla looked like. Um, now later on, when he comes back to do the the novel versions, he still doesn't do that. Um, why do you think he, even in the novellas, he withheld that at that point? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. Yeah, because um, I, I was, you know, it never really, you get a little bit of a description of Anguirus and Raids Again, but uh, yeah. with Godzilla especially, like, they, he never bothers to say, like, this is what he looked like, this is what his 
head looks like, his silhouette, whatever. He's just like, Godzilla's here. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, I wonder if that's because, like, you know, the, the movie was such a sensation in 1954. Maybe... Did he just assume that everyone already knew what Godzilla looked like? Yeah, hmm. bro, yeah, that, yeah. That's the only reason that I could make sense of it. Cause it's like, hey, I know what Godzilla looks like. But, um, yeah, that's 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 a really interesting point. Yeah. Um, an interesting thing I noticed. I mean, as a Godzilla fan, you know, we buy Godzilla things, and we are used to seeing. Uh, you know, Toho, the very protective Toho, have uh, copyright notices all over the place, and I notice it's not on here. Um, so, is this a case where um, Kayama's estate maybe um, had the rights to these novellas, and Toho didn't have to be involved with this at all? That's exactly it. Exactly it. The, it okay, and um, yeah. not not that I, it's not that I didn't want to work with Toho, but I would have. <laughs> But um, but yeah, it, be, because the uh, Kayama's estate owned the the rights to this, um, we were able to just negotiate directly with them and uh, do it very directly. And that, that's fascinating to me. I mean, uh, nowadays anything like this they would have their their hands in. But um, right. uh, yeah, that that's um, really fascinating. What was there um, any stipulations that? Um, Toho might have given him when he was doing the novellas back in the day. I mean, um, I I don't know honestly. Um, I, I yeah, I wish I could answer that a little yeah. bit better because that I think that's a great question. Um, but uh, it does seem that they gave him the free reign, or at least he managed somehow to maintain the intellectual um, property rights, the copyright um, uh, over you know his version of the story. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad he did. Um, it, it does seem to me like in, in a number of ways, um, you know, he was, he, there, there are places in the novella where it seems to me clear that he's reacting to the film. Like, um, in, when we, if we kind of trace back, you know, to the various incarnations of the story and, and like, look at the very first screenplay that he gave to Toho Studios, um, like, at the very beginning of it, there's this very, very, very heavy-handed voiceover where um, he wanted to show, like, you know, scenes of the Castle Bravo detonation in the Bikini Atoll Islands. Um, he wanted to show the destruction of of um, of, uh, of, of, of a group of fishermen who were who happened to be caught in the wake of the. Mm-hmm. The blast, the, uh, real life, actual real life people, and he wanted to show kind of actual historical footage there, and include like a voiceover that would talk about the evils of the bomb, and um, and that got taken out of the movie. Um, you know, when we watched Godzilla, the nineteen fifty four version, um, you know, there's none of that in there. Um, yes, there's. Uh, I mean, it, it's quite clear that um, that Godzilla was awakened by the bomb, but we don't actually kind of see you know shots of those things. Um, God, uh, Kayama really conceived of Godzilla, or at least his version of, the, of Godzilla, as a, a protest against uh, nuclear weapons. Um, in fact, the novella starts off with a. Um, uh, uh, so, like, when, so I guess my point is that, like, when he sat down to write his novella version, he kind of wanted to reinsert some of that protest spirit back into the novella. So, if you open to like, like the very beginning of the book, there's a there's a, a, a preamble. Um, do you mind if I read it? Like, Go real for quickly? it. 
Sure. Number two. So, so this is how he starts out the, the novella, um, with a, a statement directly from him, the author, to the readers. He says, As you readers already know, the main character of this tale, Godzilla, is an enormous imaginary kaiju, a creature that doesn't actually exist anywhere here on the planet. However, atomic and hydrogen bombs, which have taken on the form of Godzilla in this story, do exist. They are being produced and could be used for war at any moment. If that were to happen, it would not just be the big metropolises like Tokyo and Osaka that would be destroyed. The entire Earth would likely be laid waste. To prevent something so frightening and tragic from coming to pass, people all over the world are pouring their energy into a new movement opposing the use of atomic and hydrogen bombs. As one small member of that movement, I've tried to do my part by writing a novel, the tale you now hold in your hands. Reading this book in that context will make it all the more informative and interesting. So, so I, I, you know, that's a really striking addition, you know, for this novella. Like, it, it seems clear to me that Kayama's wanting to put back some of the things that he felt were kind of massaged out of the film. Yeah, the movie was kind of, um, I know, it's weird because it's a very political movie, but it, it, it seems like Honda and, and them wanted to make it... It's going to be weird to say apolitical, but, but they, they, they wanted it to be able to speak to the world and not just Japanese problems, it seems. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Like they right. wanted it to, be, to speak on a global level and not you know, a, a just from a purely Japanese level. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think in Steve Rifle's book, um, and I, I'm not, I'm not going to, uh, he has a really, really wonderful book, a biography of Honda, and um, there's a quote in there, um, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it says something to the effect that, um, that you know, he realized that, uh, that Godzilla was like not just a kind of a singular problem. It wasn't a problem of one country. You know, the nuclear weapons weren't a problem of one country. Right. It's a problem entire world and so and so you know he didn't necessarily want to kind of point the finger in the same way that Kayama wanted to do yeah. Kayama seems to pretty clearly want to point the finger at America right. and say look guys you know you know this is pretty unconscionable <laughs> what right. you're doing um, but uh, Honda kind of backs back backs away from that a little bit he doesn't point to America in any way shape or form um, in fact, uh, America is conspicuously absent from the 1954. Yeah. Yep. If you look at like the, the military that's running around, it, it looks like it's all Japanese, you know, you know, tanks and stuff like that. Um, in reality, in 1954, you know, and even up to this day, uh, you know, the, uh, the U.S. military has a very large presence in Japan. And, uh, and so, you know, if, if things, <laughs> things were going bad, um, you know, uh, America would be there somewhere involved, probably. So those kind of parts are, you know, I think Honda didn't want to draw attention to that. Mm -hmm. I, I just, oh, I find it really striking because you know, there's always this discourse about how um, the uh, subsequent was it 57 Americanization of Honda's Godzilla. You know, yeah. people people say that it tones down um, the nuclear element, even though I actually think in some ways. Um, it heightens it because the way that Terry Morse re-edited that movie, you know, now it actually opens on the scene of, you know, a, a destroyed uh, Tokyo. They they cut that part and put it in earlier. And I don't know any other 
50s atomic monster movie that literally opens with the destroyed ruins of a city and people, you know, in hospitals dying from from radiation. So um, but, you know, both both versions are are impactful in their own way. But it's just funny to think about if you go then even one step removed from Honda's film back to Kayama's Kayama's original story. Um, it's even more charged, right? It's even more political. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, th- thanks for that. That's a really interesting observation. Yeah, that that makes me wonder. Like, in terms of, you know, if, if you if you had had Toho oversight, considering the the direction that the franchise has been taking recently, how much they'd want to uh, maybe massage that message. Also, <laughs> who knows. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, along those lines, I, I did notice one of the things that you mentioned in your, um, uh, in, in your notes were that, uh, you had initially wanted to use uh, gender neutral pronouns, uh, for yeah. Godzilla. And yeah. it was, I guess your students insisted on, uh, the uh, male pronouns, but, uh, from from what I've heard from you know interviewing some of the writers of the Godzilla comic books recently, they've been told like, no, you treat the monsters as forces of nature. Uh, uh-huh. Use you know it basically. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. I, I'm wondering if that's some a, another kind of different trend in, in modern takes versus um, or, or just a kind of alternate uh, interpretation that's uh, moving along. That is a really question. I mean, I really struggled over this gender thing. Um, there is uh, nowhere in the novella whatsoever that gives any hint at all, not even the tiniest drop of a hint, um, what Godzilla's gender might be. And um, so, you know, it, that leaves open the possibility that uh, that Godzilla is not necessarily he, but Godzilla could be a she, or Godzilla could be perhaps hermaphroditic, like, you know, some. I think that there, I don't, I'm, I'm no no expert in zoology, but I, I think that there are, um, there have been hermaphroditic you know lizards and reptiles and so on out there. Um, so you know like so what pronoun should we use? Um, I at first tried um, it, and and I think that my students were really um, unhappy, you know, because Godzilla has a lot of personality, you know. Mm-hmm. The word "it" seems really kind of distancing and cold, and and I think the students didn't like that. So I tried "they" next, and uh, you know, like the kind of contemporary usage of um, "they" as a singular um, pronoun um, for non-binary kind of situations, and and I found that when I did that, it introduced all kinds of confusion into the text because there are moments where like Godzilla is like trampling people and you know interacting with people and stuff like that. And if you'd say they to refer to Godzilla and they to refer to the people around around Godzilla, then it quickly became very unclear which that they was referring to. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so the editors didn't like that one, and uh, and so I uh, so I I guess I just decided to to kind of go along with you know the regular um, most common uh, pronoun that one tends to hear applied to Godzilla at least in the English speaking world. Yeah I, yeah, I know Toho's go-to seems to be it. You know, um, if if you've seen Godzilla minus one, there's no point where they refer to Godzilla as a he. They keep saying it. Um, so, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's always an interesting 
question. Um, right. And I think it works in the film, um, Godzilla Minus One. I think it works really nicely because, um, you know, you don't have to talk. I mean, like in the book, you know, it's, Godzilla does this, Godzilla does that, Godzilla does this, Godzilla does that. You know, you kind of need pronouns a lot more than you do um, in 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 the subtitles where people are just, you know, referring to to him occasionally. Do I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the use of pronouns is much less uh, pronounced, I think, in, in the subtitles. So, yeah, um, I, 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 I still feel like some lingering, um, complicated feelings about that, you know, landing on the he pronoun, but... Um, yeah. 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 Well, I, I think there's some baggage because, you know, we're used to the the epithet, uh, the, the king of the monsters, but that is not part of that source material that you're translating. So, right, right, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The, um, all of our kind of common ways of speaking about Godzilla emerged, you know, long after this book was written in Japan. Yeah. Um, so as we're winding down, I mean, we've said an awful lot about, uh, Kayama and, you know, the, the, these novelizations, um, And uh, I was—I kind of wanted to get to something you said about kind of um, uh, how you know Kayama's version of the story is is a little bit more pointed. Um, What exactly was the motivation for these novelizations to begin with? I mean, uh, with it being something that he owned um, and and you know his estate owns. Um, it, it, it doesn't seem like it was simply, you know, a product tie-in for the movie. So what, what was his motivation in even doing this after the fact? Um, I think that there are probably a couple of multiple, um, uh, overlapping, uh, concerns. Um, I I think probably there was a financial aspect to it. Sure. Yeah. If he wrote it and published it, then, then he would get money. Um, and so, so I think that's part of it. Um, and we shouldn't discount that. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's all. As I mentioned before, I think that there were places where he felt like, you know, his nuclear, anti-nuclear message was being toned down in the film. And um, I think he saw the novellas as a chance to restore those messages, um, to help highlight those a little bit more. And, um, and then one additional point that I think we should make is that, you know, this is, it's clearly a young adult novel. It was yeah. written for a, probably an audience that I think was maybe in their teens or so. Um, and it was, it was the first volume in a proposed series of books called Shonen Bungo, which means like the young man's readers or the young man's library. And so, um, so, you know, it, it was clear that, that, Kayama wanted to take this message to the youth of Japan. You know, he wanted to take this message about the horror of nuclear war um, and radiation to an, to a younger audience that maybe hadn't seen World War II directly, and you know, maybe weren't as familiar with you know the stories about Hiroshima and Nagasaki yet. Um, I think he wanted to show you know that this this monster of radiation that's invisible, you know, just how, how frightening it could be when it, when it would wash, uh, you know, across Japanese shores. Weirdly enough, the, the most, cause like I, we talked about the movie, like the, the book doesn't necessarily mention America either. It, it, it almost seems like the, his urgency and his desperation to have 
that uh, message that you're talking about is almost all in that little um, like preamble forward section that you read earlier. It's true. I mean, that, that's definitely the place where it's strongest. But there, there are a couple of places here and there throughout the book where characters remember, oh, gosh, are we going to have to go back to the horror of some years ago? when mm-hmm. you know, um, There's one place where a character mentions, oh, gosh, you know, I managed to survive, um, you know, the atomic bombs, uh, you know, uh, down in southern Japan. But, but uh, now I'm going to have to face the, uh, another kind of threat like that again here in Tokyo. Um, so it's true that, like, you know, Kayama's not necessarily pointing his finger super directly at America, but um, there's no question that America was the one that was developing the hydrogen yeah. bomb, you know, in the first place. Um, it was, I think that that's all kind of the, the subtext of this book. Right. That Japan is quite literally caught between the two major uh, Cold War powers, and, um, and that was a terribly frightening place to be in 1954 and 55. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Jeffrey, we're really, uh, you know, that's really all we have for you. Um, is, do you have any, uh, other projects out or on the horizon, um, that you want to, to plug or, or promote or anything? Yeah. Um, so, uh, this is, uh, this is one of three books that I translated last year and published last year. Um, the, other t- the others are very different, but if there's anyone here who's really interested in, in Japanese poetry, <laughs> I did a couple of uh, really magnificent, I think, <laughs> books, uh, books last year. Um, uh, I'd like to talk about something that is an ongoing project. Sure. Um, I'm actually excited about. Um, uh, after Godzilla was published here, I guess um, the University of Minnesota Press got a flood of emails and Twitter messages and stuff from Kaiju fans around, uh, around America who said, gosh, we really hope that you'll do the Mothra book next. Um, it, it turns out that the, that the Toho film Mothra was based on a novel. And in this case, the novel came first. And so, um, and so I think that there's, you know, in the kaiju verse out there, there's been a lot of curiosity, you know, what is this novel that, uh, that Mothra is based on? So, um, so the press wrote to me and said, Jeffrey, what do you know about this book? Um, so I've tracked it down and um, I've, it's actually a pretty short book. Um, I've almost finished translating it. Um, but, uh, you know, if we're able to get the, uh, the rights for it, um, we're hoping that that should be the next book out. That would be great. Um, is that one that you, uh, have some, uh, some stuff to work out with Toho for, or? Um, this one, uh, this one, the right situation is a little bit complicated. Um, it's a very, the, the reason for that is not so much Toho, but, um, it was a, the novel was originally written by not one, not two, but three different authors. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> like, like one wrote the first part, then he passed it over to his buddy who wrote the middle. And then, uh, so like one person wrote the part about like, you know, going out to infant Island and, and, you know, and trekking around there. The second one wrote the part about like the, the fairies, you know, that are brought back to Japan and all that kind of drama. And then the third, uh, then they, they pass it on to a third writer who then wrote the part about Mothra coming and attacking Japan, you know, on behalf of the, the fairies that have been taken away. And so, so there's three authors. And so we need to get like a triple set so, of permission. Yeah, so yeah, you got to get a lot of people signing off on that. 
that, <laughs> yeah. that's fascinating that they did it because that's like um the uh, the round robin thing that you would sometimes see weird tales writers do in the 30s where you'd have a story that would be started by Lovecraft and then C.L. Moore would pick it up and then Robert E. Howard would finish it. So Interesting. Interesting. Ah, I wonder if that was some of the inspiration here. Hmm. I, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit unclear about why exactly <laughs> this this particular um, yeah, uh, strange mode of writing uh, happened. It was three very famous writers, um, not none of which were science fiction writers. All of which were all these three writers were um, what I think you would call in Japanese jumbungaku writers, um, uh, pure literature writers would be the direct translation but um, yeah they weren't like the pulpy writers at all and so it's, it was really quite a surprise to realize to me that these very intellectual um leaning writers would you know write such a kind of popular story so anyway it's a weird bit totally weird and totally fascinating text well the hey if if that you know if if that is something that uh gets gets out there uh you know i mean good luck uh and um yeah obviously when that comes out we'd love to have you back if you want to promote that thank you i really appreciate that um well jeffrey that's about it for us i mean where so where can people follow you uh online on social media if they want to keep up with you keep up with your work and you know keep up with uh what you're up to yeah, um, so um, I use Twitter, um, not as much these days, um, but uh, but I, I do use Twitter pretty regularly to talk about books and, and things that are coming out and, and podcasts that I've been on. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm Jeffrey Angles at, uh, on Twitter, so uh, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-A-N-G-L-E-S, just like one word um, on Twitter. So yeah, I would love it if people were to find me there. Okay. Um well, uh, no, that, that's that's about it for us. I mean, uh, it's been a, you've been an absolute delight, and thank you for being so generous with your time. And uh, no, this has been great. Thanks again. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for the great conversation. I uh, learned you guys too. Ah, awesome. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, everyone at home, thanks for listening, and uh, see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.